This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. Because life's just better with a book. Welcome to The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. In this episode, we explore two books you may have missed in the last five years. 2014's All That Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr and Elizabeth Gilbert's The Signature of All Things from 2013. We'll find out whether or not I finally convinced Natasha to try an audiobook over the summer. And I have been ploughing through Marcus Suzak's Bridge of Clay for quite some time. And if you'd like to join in the conversation or share your thoughts about one of the books we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Email bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. But first, Leanne Moriarty's newest release, Nine Perfect Strangers. It was an amicable divorce. Amicable on Joel's part, anyway. On Carmel's part, it felt like a death no one acknowledged. He just fell out of love with her, that's all. It must have been so hard for him, living with a woman he no longer loved. He really struggled with it, poor man. But he had to be true to himself. It happens. It happens a lot. It's essential that the discarded wife remains dignified. She must not wail and weep, except in the shower when the kids are at school and preschool and when she's alone in the suburbs with all the other weeping, wailing wives. The discarded wife must not be bitchy or unkind about the new and improved wife. She must suck it up, but without developing a sour face. It is better for all concerned if she is thin. Carmel had touched the side and turned to do another lap when she saw that someone had joined her in the pool, the friendly-looking older strawberry blonde woman. Carmel almost said hi before remembering the silence and ignoring her. She kept swimming and thought about how the woman's hair was a similar shade to Sonia's hair. No doubt they both paid handsomely for it. Carmel's daughter Lulu was fair-haired. Lulu looked entirely unrelated to Carmel, which had never mattered until the day Lulu told her that when Daddy and Sonia took them out to dinner, a lady stopped by the table and said to Lulu, "'You've got beautiful hair just like your mummy, haven't you?' Carmel said in a high-strained voice. Huh? That's funny. Did you tell her that Sonia wasn't your mummy? Lulu said that Daddy had said it wasn't necessary to always point out that Sonia wasn't her real mother. And Carmel had said, Of course it's necessary, darling. You should point it out every single time in your loudest voice. But only in her head. Out loud, she said, It's time to clean your teeth, Lulu. So tragic and so witty at the same time. Natasha, I know you've been excited about this one. So explain the premise for us, Natasha. So it's about nine people who go away to a kind of posh health resort, a kind of come and transform your life sort Mm -hmm. of place where they have meditation and fasting and yoga and massages and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, And so the idea is that these nine perfect strangers – descend on this resort for 10 days to have their lives changed and they're all coming from different places in their lives and we hear their stories the uh the fact that there are nine perfect strangers it worries me a little bit because it's a lot of main characters to keep up with i know i was thinking about this because i was a bit like oh really we're gonna do oh okay and and are we really gonna hear from everyone Mm. um and it's not even just nine because there are nine guests but then there are two 
wellness consultants who work there and the woman who runs the place. Wow. So you actually have 12 different perspectives. That's almost sounding like a Maeve Binchy novel. I, it sounds <laughs> impossible, doesn't it? It but does, But yeah. I feel not at all that way about it. She really and truly pulls it off that I have a very distinct sense of every individual personality within the book and of their and like you feel their voice each of them mm. um and their kind of attitude to this whole wellness vibe yeah um and where they've come from and i don't get their stories mixed up i don't get their voices mixed up like it's i i don't know how she does it but she's <laughs> a wizard and a master so and it sounds great. like you enjoyed it i then. really did enjoy it i mean i love leanne moriarty and i think she's so funny and all the characters are so funny and so insightful. You know, they're just even, you know, sometimes she's like massively insightful. So on things like, you know, one of the women is um, divorced and, um, you know, her husband's shacked up with some younger woman and she kind of has, she has four daughters and, um, you know, she's kind of concerned about like she's got body image issues and, you know, like mm. all the women have various kind of body image issues and she deals with that in a really insightful way. But then there's even these little moments like Frances, who is kind of the main character in a way, though we do get into everybody's heads. Um, she's like a 52-year-old uh, romance writer mm. who has kind of just become the victim of a um, an internet romance scam and is really, like, mortified about that. And um, her book hasn't been accepted, her latest book, and so she's kind of – but she's a very funny character. And there's this moment where she's driving to the, re- the retreat and she has a cold and – at some point, she opens her mouth. You know how you kind of stretch your, like, try to pop mm. your ears. Um, and she says, ow, even though it didn't actually hurt. And it's just those kind of observements where you're yeah. like, you so do that. You kind of go, if something sounds like it should hurt or feel like looks like it should have hurt, you say ow. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, I don't know why because I didn't actually. So she's just Got so good at drawing yeah. life as it actually is. Mm. So. We've got obviously a romance writer who's suffering from uh, intense feelings of failure at the moment. Uh, You've got the divorcee um, who's probably also feeling a little bit inadequate. What other kinds of scenarios and situations do we come across in this book? Well, I mean, there's a couple. They're they're young and they're beautiful and um, they've clearly come into wealth and the other characters are kind of trying to figure out how that is and why they're there. So maybe for kind of couples counselling and what what is the problem. There's a family actually, so um, the mum and dad and a daughter who's 20. And so they've got a kind of quite tragic story and they're trying to, you know, get past this thing that has happened to them as a family. Um, and then, you know, even the the woman who runs the health resort and is this Russian immigrant who used to be in the corporate world and kind of had a heart attack and um, decided that she needed to remake her life. And it's just kind of a force of nature. Mm. You see things from her perspective and then you see how she appears to everyone else. Um, and so you have these really very kind of distinct but yet very believable personalities. And part of the the real pleasure of the book, I guess, is that you see the same kind of incident happen from various people's perspectives. So, you know, these two people interact and one of them is thinking that the other is a total jerk and the other is like, you know, just really embarrassed and awkward and doesn't know how to you know, be a good guy. (laughs) Mm. So you kind of have that sense of, oh, um, actually when you dig a bit below the surface and you hear people's stories and you know where they're coming from and they're 
insecurities and all that kind of thing, actually you understand a lot more and you like them a lot more, even when they are kind of not that likable. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I would say for me, like Big Little Lies is the benchmark in Leanne Moriarty. I agree. Because it's, you know, it's insightful, but it's also just so funny. So, um, how does this compare to the benchmark? Is this funny, this book as well? Yes. Yes, I think oh, it's good. hilarious. Um, it also kind of goes to unexpected places okay. that I was like, oh, I'm, I didn't really expect this. Well, that's good. Moriarty, but I really feel like she's pulling this off and I'm really <laughs> enjoying it. So it's not predictable. So that's good. It's not predictable um, at all. And even there's a point in the middle where things kind of ramp up and take a turn Um towards the unexpected where I'd be like, I don't know how either the characters or the writer is going to kind of get herself out of this one. Like how is she going to resolve <laughs> this in a way that's satisfying? But, of course, she's Leah Moriarty, so she did. So I think Big Little Lies is still my favourite. Agreed. Mm, it's okay. number one. Um, if you're gonna... It's hard to tell because I've only just re- read this one, you know, so, so it might this, take some time you, to you, settle. Are you ranking this at number two? Is well, that what I'm hearing? After Big Little Lies. I really, really like what Alice forgot. Okay. So this is either maybe tied number two or maybe number three, I reckon. Okay. So it's up there. All right. Well, my order is Big Little Lies number one. Uh-huh. Probably what Alice forgot would be two or three. Uh-huh. Husband's Secret has to be up there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and Truly Madly Guilty. Right down the bottom at number eight. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I kind of... I haven't read them all, but I'm I expecting that will either. always be my least favourite. Because... It's a bit whatever. Nothing really happens. See, I just found it... I found it really stressful. Yeah. And that's why it's not my favourite is because I was like, oh, I'm so distressed. There wasn't What's really happened? any big secret in it, you know? It was yeah. kind of like built up that something terrible would happen and then you find, is that all that happened? Okay. Well, but I, I was really stressed the whole time about what the thing was that happened. And yeah. So that kind of sort. And even so the husband's secret, no? which is very good, but it's not nearly as fun as Big Little Eyes. I think this one is a return to fun. Yay! Yay so, for fun, Leanne Moriarty. Yes, oh, that's yes, excellent. Read it. Well, now to something perhaps a little less fun, Anthony Doerr and All the Light We Cannot See. One night, Werner and Judah tune into a scratchy broadcast in which a young man is talking in feathery, accented French. Consider a single piece glowing in your family stove. See it, children? That chunk of coal was once a green plant, a fern or reed that lived one million years ago, or maybe two million, or maybe one hundred million. Can you imagine one hundred million years? Every summer for the whole life of that plant, its leaves caught what light they could and transformed the sun's energy into itself, into bark, twigs, stems, because plants eat light in much the way we eat food. But then the plant died and fell probably into the water and decayed into peat, and peat was folded inside the earth for years upon years, eons, in which something like a month or decade or even your whole life was just a puff of air, a snap of two fingers, and eventually the peat dried and became like stone, and someone dug it up, and the coal man brought it to your house, and maybe you yourself carried it into the stove. And now that sunlight, sunlight 100 million years old, is heating your home tonight. That's from Anthony Dawes, All the Light We Cannot See. This book has won a stack of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize in 2015, the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, and the Australian International Book Award. This has been on my list of books I want to read for 
ages. What made you finally pick this one up, Natasha? Yeah, because see, it hasn't been on my list. I mean, it's just that so many people kept telling me to read it. And I think that makes me a bit stubborn, you know, Mm, which is terrible. But I'm like, oh, everybody's reading it. And, you know, another World War II book. And I think I also had a prejudice against it, which is not at all fair, because it has a really similar name to one that came out about the same time, which was The Light Between Oceans. Yes. And that one I did read and I didn't like at all. And so, you know, not at all Anthony Doerr's fault no. <laughs> that it has a sing- similar title, but I had a bit of a, like, blockage about it. But then I was staying with a friend um, over Christmas and um, she had it and she handed it to me and was like, you need to read this book. And so because it was convenient. Well, when you're living under someone's roof and they say you must do this, <laughs> that's true. you tend to do it, don't you? <laughs> So I just can't believe it's another World War II story. We just can't help ourselves, I know, can we? <laughs> I know. Well, if that's what people write, that's what we're going to read. Exactly. Now, um, All the Light We Cannot See, as the title kind of suggests, the main character is blind. So tell us about Marie Law. Yeah, so there are two main characters um, and we alternate between their viewpoints and we go back and forth in time as well, from before the war, throughout the war, to a particular day right at the end. Um And Marie Law is uh, a young girl who she goes blind when she's about six years old. Uh, She's French. uh, And so we partly follow her and we partly follow a German boy called Werner who, you know, grows up into Nazi Germany and is kind of co-opted into, he's very into radios. Mm. um, So the Hitler youth want him, I guess. Yeah, so he can, you know, make magical things happen, can fix radios, can triangulate, like, track down um, enemy radios and so they kind of want him to work with them Uh, and so you have these two parallel stories uh, tracking and they're very different individuals Um, but you know you know that at some point they're gonna their stories are gonna overlap they're gonna cross paths so um is the radio part of it quite techie I wouldn't say it's techie I mean I don't know anything about radios but you do get a sense of um just the wonder yes of uh what it's like, particularly for these, um, you know, Werner's, he grows up very poor um, in kind of a mining town um, in an orphanage with his sister and, um, you know, their life's pretty bleak, but they hear these things on the radio. Um, they, you know, find a radio kind of in the trash um, and he manages to fix it. And so it's just kind of, and it breeds his wonder for science. You know, he hears these broadcasts from, he doesn't know where, but... Um, these kind of magical tales of um, what the world around him is really like. Yeah, this I guess it would much really of, open and... up the world, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. I, I saw a video uh, where Anthony Doerr tells a story where he saw a guy on the subway just complaining, totally freaking out when his phone lost service miles underground on the subway or something, and he said he was struck by how we've lost the wonder of the miracle it is to have someone else's voice on the end of the line when they're not physically present with you. So did you get the sense of that wonder from the book? Yeah, definitely. And there's kind of a, you know, because this is a World War II book, but almost um, the war is not the point. Mm. So, you know. You is have, it more like the context for the well, story? Well, you have these two characters and their lives are quite um, 
difficult but also quite magical. Um, there's a there's a real element of wonder for both of them. So Mari Law is kind of because she's blind, she doesn't have the experiences that other people have, um, but she has all these other ones instead. So her father, um, who's a locksmith at the Natural History Museum in Paris, um, he, through him she discovers this whole world of science um, and how things feel um, at the museum. Uh, and she also learns to find her way around Paris. Her father, like, builds her a model um, of the city that she can feel with her hands, and so she knows how to find her way around as this blind girl. Um, And so she kind of is very open to just... Um, how things are and to exploring the world as it is. Um, and same for Werner, you know, this very bleak town that he's from, but he's so amazed by science and by technology and by what the world could contain. You know, he has this friend at school who loves birds. So there's just this kind of like delight in things as they are. And then the war is kind of a backdrop that, you know, what what will happen to these two, you know, people who have their own little world um, when they're caught up in this, you know, big storm, really. Mm. And is it a love story? No. Okay. <laughs> they're actually quite young for yeah. most of the book. But okay. Also, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's various kinds of love, Katrina. Yes, and, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but don't, don't come to it expecting a love story. Okay. No. I just thought it was worth asking because it's kind of where you go. You think, oh, they're yeah, going to meet and fall in love. It's good to know it's not just <laughs> Opposite that. Opposite sides of the war. And, no. Yeah. But, and, you know, there is there is a satisfying interaction, let's say, okay. between them. And. So there's been a lot of hype about this book. Are you glad you finally read it? I am glad I've read it. The reason there are all these World War II novels, right, is because there's so much there. There are so many angles. It's, it, I mean, it's huge as a war. There are so many fronts to it. And so the experiences that you can unpack from that. So the really important scene of the whole novel, which carries throughout the whole novel, is the bombing of um, a town in Brittany in northern France called Saint-Malo. Um, this is where they overlap, where their stories finally come together. Um, and, you know, I didn't know anything about this story, um, but mm. you kind of go, this This is just this one little pocket of this huge war, but it's enormous for the people who live in that town and, you know, they've been occupied for years. And um, so just getting that glimpse into what life is really like for people. Um, and so it's just kind of a very different angle on these same old stories. Mm, that sounds interesting. Thank you, Natasha. We've been talking about Anthony Dawes' The Light We Cannot See. If you want to share your thoughts about this book, email bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now for another sweeping historical saga. Elizabeth Gilbert, author of the world-famous Eat, Pray, Love book, has a new title coming out later in the year. So I thought we would check out something from her backlist. Although uh, many of her books have been non-fiction, in 2013 she published a novel, The Signature of All Things. Natasha Moore is here to explore it. Have you read any of Elizabeth Gilbert's other books like Eat, Pray, Love or Big Magic? No, I haven't I haven't read any others. This was the first one. And I was actually quite reluctant when I realised that Elizabeth Gilbert was the author of Eat, Pray, Love, um, which I have not read and I have not seen, but mm. I still managed to feel a bit snobby about. I was like, oh, do I want to read this novel? And so I was really surprised that the novel, to me, read nothing like that kind of you know that genre of book and reading reviews of this 
a lot of people, I think, had this experience that they not necessarily having read Eat, Pray, Love, but we're feeling just kind a bit of a like bit turned off. Yeah, because- they were like, oh, she's a bit self-helpy, or you know, I don't really want to read it. Whereas the novel is incredible, actually. Well, it's funny because I actually saw the movie of Eat, Pray, Love kind of reluctantly and went, oh, wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. I'll read the book. Read the book and went, oh, that wasn't so bad. Um, and then went on and read another book of hers on creativity called Big Magic, which is yeah, a little bit a little bit cray-cray in parts but still quite interesting. <laughs> you read the lot. Then she wrote a book on marriage and then she split up from her <gasps> partner. Oh, boy. Uh after releasing the book on marriage. So I was like, yeah, I'm not going to read that one. And then I went on to the signature of all things. So, yeah. Um, but, but the signature of all things is unusual, I think, in that it has – it's a historical novel, but it has a female protagonist who breaks the mould, I think, in some ways. Like she's very passionate, but she's also lonely. Did you connect with this main character of Alma Whitaker? It depends what you mean by connect. I liked her a lot. Mm. In fact, all of the characters in this book are fascinating um, and kind of delightful um, and weird. They're She's weird. weird. I think Alma's um, quite weird. Yeah. But, you know, like because they're not really like anyone you know, they're way more interesting, um, but they're not. it's not as though you kind of identify. It's not as though you see yourself <laughs> in this story. Um, but Alma is, um, you know, she's... Born to this uh, man, Henry Whitaker, who um, the story starts with him really, and he is born very poor in England um, and uh, kind of schemes his way onto a voyage that, you know, one of Captain Cook's voyages uh, that Joseph Banks, the botanist, sends him on. He has all these adventures. He makes his fortune essentially and becomes one of the wealthiest men um, in America. Um, builds this massive estate in Philadelphia, has this one child, Alma. Um, and she is brilliant and ugly mm. um, and kind of spends her life. She has this kind of life of luxury but also isolation and, um, you know, real craving for love and intimacy and doesn't really have that in a straightforward way Um but also it has this fascination with plants, which her father also shared. Mm. Um, so this is kind of a book about botany, actually, which I don't know anything about botany. I didn't <laughs> know I was interested in botany. But, you know, reading this book made me interested in it. Well, you know, there is a, quite a lot of botany and science in the book and I remember she studies mosses for like seven years or yeah. something. Did you enjoy that aspect of the I book? I actually really did. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm getting the vibe from you that you didn't. But. No, I, I was just... I guess I was kind of intrigued that you could write a book about a character studying mosses for seven years and it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the fascination is because this book does cover, you know, it goes from London to Peru to like um, Philadelphia to Tahiti and Mm. it it does have this geographical epic sweep. But Mm. also Alma for most of her life lives just in this one little place. Yeah. But the idea is that, you know, she digs in, 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 into these mosses um, and nobody's really studied this before and she pays attention to this thing that nobody has paid attention to and realises all these things about kind of the world and the universe um, and what life is like through studying this like apparently really small uninteresting thing so it's that kind of idea of um you know you could travel the world in your own backyard Mm. because the world is infinitely rich and fascinating and there's so much to learn Um, I just can't imagine the amount of research Elizabeth Gilbert must have done to have written this book I mean it covers 
a time period of great um, scientific and geographical discovery, I mean, in Western kind of view, and it kind of feels almost like nonfiction in places, I think. Um, did you feel you learned about the period and what life was like for people then? I did feel that. I It's kind of because um, my background is um, Victorian literature. That's kind of my thing. So mm. it's my period in okay. a way um, and I knew some stuff about it already. Um, and there is a lot of detail and a lot of kind of historical characters in there but I never at any point felt like oh and now she's gone into the mode of telling us about the research she did and now we're in learning mode and we've kind of dropped out of novel mode the whole time I felt like it was really essentially part of the story Mm. and towards the end actually I don't want to give any spoilers but um you know, the theory of evolution kind of comes up in Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, these people who are working on this idea of, you know, time and change and um, where did species come from and um, where did humans come from. Um, and I kind of, when that started to come up, I got a bit worried. I was like, oh, this is going to end up a bit twee or what's going to happen here. But it was beautifully worked in and totally believable that you have this fictional character um, and the way that that's intertwined with these real people, like Captain Cook, like Charles Darwin, mm. is actually really deftly done. I was yeah. really impressed. Oh, cool. I mean, another aspect of this book we probably should touch on is her loneliness and her unfulfilled desire, mm. which I did find it a little too much at times. <laughs> um, there is but- some um, explicit material, there shall is we say, in some this explicit, yeah. Um, but it did sort of make me realise that this topic, which is sort of, touched on at moments in this book of um, female sexual longing is still a bit of a taboo subject. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I from my own reaction, I was like, oh, I'm a bit uncomfortable with this. Yeah, that, and you don't often, because when you read Victorian novels, when you read novels from the period, they're um, very reticent about everything. Like, mm. They don't talk about anything. They don't talk about pregnancy. They don't, you know, mm. you don't get any... Details. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to read something that has the explicitness of a contemporary novel, but obviously is set um, in a time period where that's not talked about, I think is a really interesting contrast. And as you say, even more so than most contemporary novels would do it. And maybe that was why I found that part a little bit confronting. (laughs) That's just a little bit of a warning there. So who do you think would enjoy this? I think people who like historical fiction, definitely. Mm. Um, I, I want to say, you know, people who are interested in botany, people who are interested in, you know, science and evolution. But actually, I don't think you have to be interested in any of those things because she's so good at drawing you into it that you will find yourself enjoy it, like capturing the wonder and the vision and mm. the delight in those things. Um, and so I kind of think it's for everyone. You need to have a little bit of time. It's a long novel. Oh, yes, it is long. All right. (laughs) We've been talking about The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. We'd love to know what you thought of this book or if you've read another Elizabeth Gilbert book. Email us at bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. So now we need to talk audiobooks because (laughs) I was rather enthusiastically suggesting, I'm trying to make that sound polite, <laughs> pushing you basically uh-huh, uh-huh. into trying an audiobook over the summer. So yes. how did you go with that? Well, I listened to an audiobook 
Okay. You'll be pleased to know. Yay. Okay. I, I step ne- one. <laughs> I nearly didn't. Um, I was actually, so in theory over the summer, right, but I spent December in the Northern Hemisphere and I was actually driving around the UK in mm. December. Best way um, to hear an audio book. And yeah, so I was like, okay, I'm driving. I will listen to so something pick- English. Yes, something quintessentially yes, English. Yes. yes. Um, and something that will be kind of you know, plotty, but not too intricate in language. Anyway, I went with a book that I've been meaning to read for a long time, which was um, Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day. Do you know, I I haven't read the book, but the movie, oh my goodness, when I first saw it as a teenager, it touched me so deeply and I was so, so sad and it stayed with me forever. The idea of these two people who love each other, but it's completely repressed. Yeah. Oh, well, it just gets to Because that me. was the impression I had of it, not having seen or read it. But mm. I was like, you know, people – because I'd read Never Let Me Go by Ishiguro, and, um, which I thought was great but, you know, distressing. Um, but this is about a butler and a housekeeper in an English country house rather than, you know, clones and stuff, which is what yes. Never Let Me Go is about. It's like that sounds like my kind of book. Listening to it was an interesting experience. I think it was a good choice because – it is quite uh, spare and simple in its language, so I didn't find it hard to – I didn't need to kind of pause and be like, oh, I've lost track. I mean, it's a story more about what's not said, right, than what is said. Well, that's true. So I mean, in that goodness, way. It's, so, I mean, should we explain what this book is about? Yes. You go for it, Natasha. <laughs> um, so it's told by Mr. Stevens, who has been a butler for many, many years in um, – an English country house called Darlington Hall. He was serving Lord Darlington, who has now died, and there's an American who's bought the, the estate and he's trying to be the but, a butler to this American who is a bit more modern and doesn't do things quite the same way. And he gets a letter from um, Mrs. Ben, who was Miss Kenton. She was the housekeeper with him in the house many years ago. Um, and they had a bit of a, like, butting heads relationship uh, but also became quite attached to each other. And it's him kind of reflecting on this. I really think he time. was madly in love with her. Yeah, it depends who you ask on this. Yeah. Because the whole thing, I mean, what I found fascinating about it, listening to it, is that, and I'm reading this from, you know, this was written in the 80s, so I'm looking back on it from decades on and things that have happened in the meantime. He comes across as either... On the spectrum, mm-hmm. okay, or just very English, yeah, and it's hard to distinguish okay. which he's meant to be because having read novels since, like you know, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, or you know, the Rosie Project, those books, you kind of go, well, this is the thing now. You have a narrator who doesn't kind of get social cues the way other people do, whereas you know, I don't think he's intended to be that. I think he's just you know a Stiff stoic, upper lip. Yeah, yeah, a particular generation of. English people and, you know, yeah. particular um, kind of upbringing mm. that he thinks that he's meant to repress everything and subordinate his own desires and humanity to kind of being the perfect servant. He's been, yeah, he's devoted his life to being a servant so much that he doesn't even recognise his own needs. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know, it's so funny because when I saw this as a film, as I said, as a young person, I had no experience with this kind of thing at all, but somehow I found it so moving mm. and, I, and so tragic that people could go through life never really saying the things that they want to say. Mm. So you'd recommend the movie? Yeah, the movie was great. Mm. I mean, now my question is, have I read this book now? 
I don't yes, know. You of think course. I've read it? You've enjoyed the audiobook. Well, I of course it. you've read it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I read on audiobook The Gentleman of Moscow all oh, 17 yes. hours worth. Oh, boy. I did not realise it was going to be so long. It's surprisingly long. So I started listening to it, and all, most audiobooks that I've listened to have been about 10 hours, and I'm listening to it for ages, and I'm like, I'm not even halfway. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> But I was going to say it was a great read and it's it's got a slow build. It has a, some really great turns, sort of unexpected developments in it and the performance was fantastic. So if you're thinking of an audiobook where you've got 17 hours up your sleeve, maybe a long trip <laughs> into the heart of Australia or you've got a long commute, I definitely recommend The Gentleman of Moscow by great. Amor Tales. Yeah. All right. So now it's time for my pick. I've got to pick up this book because it is heavy and it has taken me a long time to read this, Natasha. Did I, you finish it? I've, I finished it last night. Oh, I was like, up till midnight. <laughs> oh, I'm so tired. Um, all right. So it's Bridge of Clay, the long-awaited um, latest release from Marcus Suzak, author of The Book Thief. Now, I loved The Book Thief, so I came to this with very high hopes. Um, it's the story of five brothers, the Dunbar boys, and their father, Michael Dunbar, and their mother, Penelope Dunbar, um, who's also known as the Mistake Maker. Um, she has moved to Australia from Eastern Europe um, after her father, who is also her piano teacher, sends her away, basically against her will, to make a new life for herself as an act of sacrificial love. So she'd be far away from the deprivations of, I think, post-war kind of communist Europe. But it's really about the fourth brother, her son, Clay, and everything happens to him as the book um, repeats. So it's definitely a like a beautiful and very heartfelt book. Uh, it's about brotherly love. It's about what it does to a boy to lose his mother at such a tender young age. And he's had to grow up like way too fast. Matthew, who is the eldest brother, is the narrator. And um, after his mum dies at the end of a very protracted and quite traumatic illness that drags on for sort of years, um, their father leaves them. And that's not a spoiler. Yeah, that's on the cover. And so that leaves Matthew in charge. And, like, to cope with their father leaving them, the dad sort of becomes the enemy. He's the bad guy. Um, And they can't forgive him, which is understandable as well. And so Matthew takes care of these wild boys, teenage boys, as best as he knows how. And so it's a story of kids who suffer deeply, who grow up too soon, who make their own rules and who ultimately survive. But it's Clay who has a very special role in bringing the family back together. Oh, and yeah. I mean, this has been kind of long awaited, right? Yes. The book Thief was a big hit. Yes. And he's taken some time to really write what he wanted to write yes. and thought was important to write. Do yes. you think it succeeds? Everyone who's read this book has told me they've wept at the end and that they've been moved and that they're going to miss this family so much because they've become so attached to the characters. And I'd have to agree with that. I guess my caveat would be that for me, because I read it while working and not on holidays, it is a very thick book and it took me a while to get through it. And had it not been by Marcus Suzak and had I not known that he would deliver ultimately, I think I possibly could have put this book down. I mean, if it was written by a total stranger I'd never heard of and I just picked up randomly off the shelf, I think I would have at times struggled to keep up with it. And that's just because it's a long read and so it is a big time commitment. So I would say if you've never read Marcus Suzak, I wouldn't start with this first. I'd start with The Book Thief. But if you've read and loved another work of his, 
pick this up, but do it when you've got a little bit of time on your hands. Because for me, reading it over six weeks was a little bit frustrating, where I'd read 20 (laughs) minutes a night and then not pick it up for a couple of days. And it really is a book to lose yourself in. All right. Well, thank you so much, Natasha. It's been great catching up and chatting books in this episode of The Hope Book Club. We talked about 2014's All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dorr. We discussed Elizabeth Gilbert's The Signature of All Things from 2013. And uh, I polished off Marcus Zusak's Bridge of Clay. If you'd like to respond to anything we've talked about, we'd love to hear from you. Book club at hopemedia.com.au. And thanks for listening to the Hope Book Club because life's just better with a book. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.